0: Hello, I'm Richard Hurley, the BMJ's Features and Debates Editor. Next week's Maudsley debate, to be held on Wednesday the 22nd of November at King's College London, asks whether fundamental reform to the UK Mental Health Act is needed to reduce discrimination and unnecessary detention. And two of the speakers have contributed an article to the BMJ and they're joining me by phone now. George Schmuckler is Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry and Society at King's College London and he thinks that the Mental Health Act has had its day. And Scott Weich is Professor of Mental Health at the University of Sheffield and he is not so sure. George, for the benefit of all of our readers worldwide, might you briefly explain what the Mental Health Act is and how many people it affects? Um,
1: The Mental Health Act um, covers... Uh, a number of areas, but the most important from from our point of view for this discussion is uh, the criteria for admitting people to hospital and treating them against their will. And uh, there it uh, spells out in uh, some detail the criteria, which I can go into if you like, um, which I have uh, my concerns about. The number of people who have been admitted recently, uh, I think at for the last year, I think it was over 60,000 people admitted on an order, and I believe that that is about a 50% increase over the last decade. So it's, it, it involves increasing numbers of people, um, which has caused uh, a lot of concern.
0: And Scott, this debate is timely, isn't it? You mentioned in your article that there's pressure from the United Nations. Why is there this interest in the Mental Health Act now?
2: Well, I think I think there's a number of things going on at the moment. As George correctly states, there's real concern about the number of people that are detained every year. Uh, you know, more than sixty thousand people last year, and and this big increase year on year that we see. Um, I think there's also you know an issue uh, around real challenges around delivering high-quality service outcomes and patient experience, and, and I think there can be little doubt that actually we're not doing very well at the moment in mental health services, so there's real concern that you know, patients aren't getting as well as they might and, that, and in some areas that suicide rates are, are going up. And then, as you say, there's, there's this issue about compliance with the United Nations and the Convention for the Protection of the Rights of People with Disability And we are not currently compliant with that in a number of respects. And in one key respect, uh, you know, the United United Nations Convention says that there should be no legislation which compels people to
0: require treatment uh, for any kind of condition against their wishes. Thank you. George, you, you mentioned the criteria then on which people can be detained and treated against their will. Would, could, you, could you tell us what they are? And then maybe you can explain at the same time why, uh, why the act should go.
1: OK, well, there is a contrast to be made between the criteria for involuntary treatment for people with a mental disorder and all other patients, uh, ordinary medical, surgical patients. So that if we take the case of a medical or surgical patient, a patient can refuse any treatment that is being offered to him or her if the treatment doesn't suit or if the person simply doesn't want to have the treatment. And this may occur even if the outcome might be quite serious and most people might see the decision as imprudent. Now, there is a way in which such people can be treated against their will, and that's under the Mental Capacity Act in our country and similar uh, legislation elsewhere. And there are two elements to this. The first one is that the person must be incapable of making a treatment decision for themselves um, due to some impairment or disturbance of the functioning of the person's mind. So that means that they're unable to understand the information given concerning the nature of the illness or why the treatment's being proposed or the expected outcomes of uh, having the treatment or or not having it. And also, uh, whether they appreciate the relevance of this information to their predicament and whether they're able to reason with it, that is, to weigh this information in the light of what's important for that person. And the second element is, even if they lack that decision-making capacity, that the proposed treatment is in the person's best interests. And the best interest, increasingly, is giving special regard to what the person would choose according to their deep beliefs and values, uh, their commitments, and personal life goals. So that's a capacity and best interests model. Now, in contrast, uh, people with a mental disorder, uh, their involuntary treatment is governed by entirely different rules. They share nothing with capacity and best interests. So the approach there is what what I call the disorder and risk model. That is, first, the person has a diagnosis of the mental disorder, usually vaguely, extremely vaguely defined. And second, that the person is judged to present a risk to their health or safety or to the safety of other people. That's an entirely different model, as I said, disorder and risk model. Now, of course... What constitutes a mental disorder can be very difficult to define and and thus it does open possibilities for abuses of psychiatry, Uh, and the assessment of risk at the same time is subject to all sorts of inaccuracies, especially so for rare events, the ones that we're most concerned to prevent, like suicide or serious violence. Um, So comparing these rules in psychiatry and the rest of medicine points up a stark discrimination against people with mental illness.